And as we introduced our subject last week, or actually that was yesterday. See, I'm a little distracted. It feels like last week at this point. Uh, the study of King Asa, who started good and ended poorly. Uh, we're looking at the highlights, the lowlights, and the taillights. And the taillights being the most significant part of this, not just uh, gaining historical information, but what we can learn from his example and his reign as king. All right, let's, uh, let's begin this morning by praying together. that chain. I mentioned that uh, as we're studying the life of Asa from Second Chronicles and the three chapters uh, that are found regarding his reign, which is a rather lengthy account, uh, when you consider the other accounts of the kings, uh, even stacked against uh, Hezekiah and Josiah, still the three chapters, that's quite a lot uh, for the reign of Asa. The king's account in 1 Kings 15, if you'll slip over there quickly, some of the same material that we're reading in Second Chronicles, some of the same information is here repeated. We'll go through this quickly in First Kings 15. As I suggested, uh, there's only, what, 15, 16 verses here about the reign of Asa. That's it. And then Jehoshaphat, his son, reigns in his place. So you wouldn't know from reading through the Bible and coming to First Kings chapter 15 that there's really so much to be said about the reign of Asa, but the Chronicles account will tell us there is a lot more to be said about his reign. He reigned 41 years, and he's reigning, he begins his reign in the 20th year of Jeroboam. So the first monarch of Israel is still reigning when Asa takes the throne after Rehoboam and his son. And there was war, of course, between, between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life, and so there's still conflict. In fact, Asa is going to deal with Basha uh, of Israel, and that's going to cause some problems, as we'll see at the latter part of this uh, narrative. So Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord, like David his father. David is the benchmark. And of all that you might say negatively, even about David, the overall tenor of David's life was one of faith and worship and righteousness. It's sort of hard for us, and I, I've seen this struggle. We studied the life of David uh, recently at home. And, you know, people will say things about David that, uh, man, I'm bleeding worse. I don't know. Just, just try not to let this be too big of a distraction. I'm sorry. Um, Shane, you may have to take over if, if things go, go worse than this. Don't move my bottom lip. Don't move my bottom lip. Yeah, see, <laughs> speaking, thank you, uh, from one who's preached. Uh, as you speak, it's going to be hard for that to clot. I realize that. Okay. Where was I? Okay. Yes. No, David. David is where I was. And, and so I did a recent study in Decker Prairie, and, and there was a lot of expression of David's failures. And, and I, 
I think we're a little too hard on biblical characters sometimes. Because if your whole life was put out there for everyone to see, you know, how would you feel about that? Everything you ever did. You didn't have a control or say over what was recorded. Every mistake in judgment, every sinful act, everything you ever did that was negative, you know, even things you did in your home, I mean, uh, behind closed doors. There's, there's no behind closed doors when the Holy Spirit is revealing this message. And so I think we get on our high horse a little bit when it comes to the mistakes of biblical characters. And if the Bible speaks approvingly of their lives, particularly in summary, and it does of David, what does uh, Acts 13 and the sermon that Paul preached, what were some of the comments made about David in that sermon in Antioch of Pisidia? Remember? There's a famous expression there that we quote a lot. A man after my heart who will do my will. That's the summary. And it says he served the purpose of God in his generation and then fell asleep. Uh, Acts 13, verse 36. So, so that to me is, and, and look at all of the Psalms that he wrote. And so people talk about his, his fathering skills and the problems with Absalom. And uh, did, was there some other things he could have done? Uh, I would just say, you try, you try running a kingdom and having as many wives as he did, which was a poor choice, and the number of children that he had by different wives, and I don't know what that was like to, to be a king like he was, to have all the responsibilities that he had, and to run a successful kingdom. So how does that you know, play out in terms of his responsibility, his, his fatherly ways. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be too critical of all of that. I just know that the overall theme of day, and of course this incident with Bathsheba was entirely negative. There was a period in his life where he was not doing well spiritually. I mean, it, it wasn't just a day or two. The whole thing with Bathsheba was very, very involved. And it took some time before Nathan the prophet finally came to him and said, you're the man. So there were some negative periods in his life, but the overall influence of his reign was good. And so we're dealing with some of that when we look at these kings, and I bring that up because of something in regard to Asa here. It says he put away the male cult prostitute from the land and removed all the idols which his fathers had made. So he's going back to the example of David. David is the benchmark for all future kings of Judah. So even saying that shows the regard the people had for the kind of leader David was. He also removed Maacah. Now 2 Chronicles deals with that uh, in detail too. Uh, his mother. You know, you, you take tell mom, you're done. Mom, you're done. And, and that, that takes some courage to do that uh, to the queen mother. And she had made a horrid image. And so he tore that down. But verse 14, the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days. And I have that underlined. And that leads us to a statement in chapter 15 of Second Chronicles that's very similar. And then we have to deal with the aftermath of chapter 16. Because he struggles greatly in 16. So how do we reconcile wholly devoted to the Lord all his days to what transpires at the end? And we'll probably be delving into that a little bit more uh, tomorrow. So he brought into the house of the Lord the dedicated things of his father and his own dedicated things, silver and gold. And there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. Just like there had been war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And so in the end of the story in 1 Kings 15, he makes a treaty with Ben-Hadad, king of Syria. Now you have to understand the why of this, and this is going to go on 
throughout several more kings' reigns in Judah, at a future point, Ahaz, king of Judah, is going to fear the king of Syria and the king of Israel, and that is going to lead to the promise of the virgin birth in Isaiah chapter 7. And, of course, Ahaz tries the patience of the Lord. He is the father of whom? Ahaz is the father of what king? Hezekiah. Hezekiah. So, so Hezekiah is going to be much better than dad, but Isaiah comes to Ahaz and says, ask whatever you want, any sign you want from the Lord. And Ahaz, always a disappointment to God, says... Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't want to ask God for a sign. And look, when God tells you to ask for a sign, you ask for a sign. And he didn't do it. And so he says, I'm going to give you a sign in spite of your foolishness. You not only try the patience of men, you try the patience of God as well. And that was sort, that's sort of an insightful statement. Not only is God having problems with Ahaz, but the people are having problems with him too. I mean, he tries the patience of men as well as the patience of God. And so these kings to the north, that's where I started with all of this, are problematic. And so why would you appeal to Ben-Hadad of Syria in relation to Basha, king of Israel? Why would you even think about doing that? Geography. What, what about Geography. That's right. We can keep Basha occupied by the Syrians to the north. That'll take some of the pressure and threat off me. You know, you sort of got them sandwiched like an Oreo cookie. Uh, and, and so you've got, you've got pressure coming on both sides. And so it made sense from a political point of view. Now, there's not a lot of editorial comment here in 1 Kings. Your editorial comment comes... In 2 Chronicles 16, that we'll study tomorrow, where God says, you've made a very large blunder here. And it is somewhat based on what we saw yesterday when Asa was facing the army of a million men of Ethiopia. And what did he do? Somebody tell me, what did we learn yesterday? He asked God for help. That's right, Elvira, good comment. And so this is what we looked at yesterday in regard to 2 Chronicles chapter 14. And we talked about making faith real and alive. And he had such a faith, and we can learn from Asa throwing it all out before the Lord and saying, I've got nothing. There are situations and circumstances in your life no matter how much you want to control or dictate what happens, where you discover it's beyond me. I do not have the control here that I would want or I would like. I can't fix this. I'm not powerful enough. I cannot alter what's happening here. And then, in those moments, you realize only God can provide the answers. You need to depend completely upon him for your course and destination. And so we talked a little bit about that from chapter 14. And so we come to chapter 15 in 2 Chronicles this morning as we've looked at 1 Kings 15. And maybe that will help you to remember where the two accounts are. I always use numbers this way when I can. You know, where where, where is this in the text? Uh, 1 Kings 15, 2 Chronicles 15. And I would just label the second chapter after the Ethiopian crisis occurs. Azariah the prophet comes in and challenges the people to be committed to the covenant. Now, before I get to this, I want to talk about the high places that we read about in 1 Kings 15. Somebody tell me what you know about the high places. That's where the, the, 
the phrase originally comes from. They, you know, why, why would you worship on a high place? You got any ideas why you do that? Closer to God, it's proximity. You know, if God is in the heavens, if God is above, then you get up closer to it. But it's also interesting that the high places didn't always remain in high places. Uh, there's some biblical texts where the high places actually came down to the low places. And so it just, it just came to mean a place of worship. Was it always about idolatry and false religious practices? No. Not until the Lord's house was built did it really represent a significant spiritual problem. It was just a geographical place, a location near people where they could offer up worship. Sometimes it was done in relation to Jehovah himself, particularly prior to the permanent structure for God's worship in Jerusalem. Uh, We see worship and sacrifices taking place at these religious centers prior to temple construction uh, in the Old Testament. So it wasn't necessarily wrong at one point, though it's made clear in Numbers and Deuteronomy that that this could be a snare and that they, whatever the Canaanites were doing in regard to the high places, that needed to be removed. That needed to be done with. And so as temple worship occurred from the days of Solomon onward, this was something that God wanted removed, but often was not. Who who tore down the high places? Which kings? Josiah did, and his great-grandfather, predecessor to him, who was that? Hezekiah. Hezekiah is his great-grandfather. So, Hezekiah and Josiah, it says something about them that's unique. That there was no king like him before or after him. And somebody said, well, if it says it about Hezekiah, there was no king like him before or after him, how could it also say that about his grandson Josiah? That there was no king like him before or after him. You get to answer that while I continue to deal with my issues. They were different. I, that, that's a good answer, uh, Nova. I'll go with that. that. That's sort of my thought about all of that. They, they were different. That they, they were unique, even though they did some of the same things. They lived in different times, faced different challenges. And in the days of Josiah, for instance, what did they lost? They lost something that was found. The book of the law. Was, I mean, they, they, they've lost the law. They, the law of God is lost. And, and so there were all kinds of unique things in their reigns. And they tore down the high places, but there were some good kings who didn't. And that's, that's sort of the, the sticking point here. Who was Asa's son now? Did we mention that yesterday? Who was Asa's son? No. Jehoshaphat. Okay, Jehoshaphat. Remember we read about him in the in the vein of his father uh, experienced a great victory by trusting in God and putting the singers out front. Uh, that was a great story. A few chapters later in Second Chronicles chapter twenty, and yet it says of and Jehoshaphat had some issues too. What what would you say was another issue of Jehoshaphat? His alliance with Ahab, yeah, that, that was negative. I mean, uh, Ahab was a bad character. And, and so that, that was always a negative in Jehoshaphat's reign. And two, Asa and Jehoshaphat did not remove the high places. So what, what do we do about that? I was reading an article about it this morning. I've gotten a little distracted by the high places uh, this morning. actually happened quite early in the day. And... How do we reconcile high place worship and the failure to eradicate it completely because it was such a snare for them? They would adopt the practices of the inhabitants that were there before them and dedicate them to false gods. Well, maybe I should ask this question. Who erected the first high place 
after the temple was built. I didn't really know this till this morning, so why would I expect you to know it, right? The guy who built the temple. <laughs> the guy who built the temple, Solomon. I mean, this got off to a bad start uh, with, with King Solomon. And he, who, who did he build the high places to? His wives' gods who turned his heart away from the Lord. You know, I, I can just see these wives, these foreign alliances that were made and the wives, the relationships that developed with, with King Solomon, his wife would say something like, well, I, I want to worship my God, the God of, of my homeland. And so can I have my own worship shrine that I can express my faith? And so, it's not Solomon's faith, but okay, I'll make you your worship shrine. It's hard to please 700 wives. And 300 concubines. And so he's building these high places for these false gods. And so he's violating the very thing that they were warned about before they ever entered the land. And so some of these kings that followed, it wasn't their doing. It's not like Hezekiah said, hey, let's build some high places. He just didn't tear them down like he should have. Because they were a snare to the people. And so they're not held to the same level of accountability, perhaps. And then you could add Acts 17, 30, in the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. There, there seems to have been some leniency and mercy, uh, even though there is still that today, I believe. Perhaps not to the extent, you know, to whom much is given... Much is required. You know, it's not like these guys had the example of Christ. And I think we do the same thing with David that we do with, with Samson. We, we look at Samson's life and we just go, man, this guy was off the rails a lot of the time. You know, he sees a woman, tells his parents, get her for me. She looks good to me. You know, and, oh, that's not a good, good way to start a relationship and have be so carnal about it and and then what happens at the end, you know, did he commit suicide? You know, is, is Samson going to be in heaven? And we ask all these kinds of questions. And, and this sort of relates to Asa and his ending. And we'll talk about this tomorrow. But what do you think about Satan? I mean, uh, Satan. Samson's, Satan's influence. Samson's eternal destiny. What do you think about that? We'll go ahead and introduce it today. And at the end, even though he perishes when he causes the collapse of the building, he actually killed more Philistines, who were the uncircumcised Philistines, the enemies of God. He, he killed more Philistines in his death than he had killed during his life. And, and so he was exacting vengeance on God's enemies, and that's the way they saw it in regard to many of these military conflicts than unfolded. My argument for Samson and his being in the presence of God would actually be Hebrews 11.32. He's, he's mentioned in the great hall of faith. It's surprising really uh, that Samson would be mentioned there as it's, it's like the Hebrew writer is sort of down to that period in Israel's history. You know, he's, he's gone sort of chronologically with the heroes of faith and so when he gets down he says and time will fail me he's like well I haven't talked about the judges I haven't talked about the kings uh, so he throws in Gideon and Barak which is an interesting inclusion you might think he would have thrown in Deborah because he's not opposed to throwing in women he's already put Rahab in there uh, but he mentions Barak which so there's a lot about Barak we really don't even know that apparently a first century audience would know more about. And Samson is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. And you would think there'd be a lot more about David than just the mention of his name. But again, they wandered about in caves and deserts and holes in the ground. And I think that's pretty much a reference to David 
as he was fleeing from Saul and caves and anywhere else he could find refuge. So Samson is put forth as, as a person of faith. Well, and, and the question is, what do we see? Even in crisis, when Samson makes some really foolish decisions, and, you know, I've been there and done that, uh, made some foolish decisions in my life, just like he did. You know, what did he do in his crisis? He called out to God. He, he, he believed in, in the presence of God, the help of God, cried out to God. I mean, he went to the right place when he found himself in trouble. And so, again, I think we judge these characters somewhat harshly. And so we'll get to more of this tomorrow in chapter 16. Any comments or questions uh, so far? And relented of the calamity for a time that he was going to bring on, on Ahab. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting story. And, of course, we see what happens later with King Manasseh, the, the grandfather of Hezekiah, where he does all sorts of evil, has his son pass, sons pass through the fire, and then, then he humbles himself in his latter days. You know, what, what does that mean about his eternal destiny? And, of course, I was going to say earlier when we brought this up that it's not our place, ultimately. It's God's. Drew? Yeah, and, and at the end of the day, you know, how confident are you to say Jezebel didn't go to heaven? I'm pretty confident there. You know, but, but then when we read about in Revelation chapter 2, the Jezebel in the church at Thyatira, now that's, that's interesting, isn't it? And what did God, what does Jesus say he's going to give her? Time to repent. He's going to give her time to repent. You, this is a woman who is engaging in immorality, encouraging immorality, probably associated with, with idolatry. And he gave her time to repent. He's giving each of the seven churches, the five of whom that he has critical things to say, time to repent, to wake up and strengthen the things that remain, and, and all of those sorts of things, a church that had a name that it was alive but it was dead, he's giving them time. And again, I, I find that very comforting. We, and we, we talk about, yesterday we talked about having children who are unfaithful to the Lord, and that's the experience of some of us. And, man, there's no reason to give up. I mean, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. You know, anybody that has a wayward child, have you, have you beaten yourself up over that verse? You know, I, I've known people who I perceive did a whole lot less who got better results. You know, there, there's a lot of factors to why we lose our children. And I, I'm not an expert on all of that. But I do know the things that you did to instill righteousness in your children. You never know when the circumstances of their life will be such that they turn it all around. And we've all known of cases where people who were away from the Lord, who grew up among the Lord's people, who were away from the Lord for a long period of time, ultimately got it together. I was talking to a brother last night, and that was his circumstance. I mean, you just don't know when that training that the wise writer talks about in Proverbs 22 actually starts to bear the kind of fruit that you desire.
and that God desires in their lives. So don't give up. Don't give up. God gives space and time to repent. And here's the thing. God knows the story. God knows how it's going to all unfold and how it's going to end. He knows who has a heart for him and who doesn't. And he knows who's going to right the ship and who isn't. And that also gives me great consolation in the final day of judgment, the final day of reckoning when it comes. You know, God will come at exactly the best time to save those whose hearts are his. And that's, again, a passage from tomorrow's study in chapter 16. Okay, chapter 15 quickly. The Spirit of God comes upon Azariah. And so he goes out to meet Asa and says, The Lord is with you. And I have this marked in verse 2. Verse 2 is an awesome verse. The Lord is with you when you are with him. <laughs> okay, that's, that's a simple truth that you need to mark and mark well. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. You know, that's interesting. Don't ever forget that we come to the Lord because he grants it. It's by his mercy and his sovereign will. As he would tell the disciples to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's, it's by the sovereign will of God that hearts are opened to the message. That doesn't mean God flips all the levers and turns on all the switches. It means that ultimately we owe everything to God. God is in control of all of this. It is only because of him that we are in Christ. And so, if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And then in verse 3, for many days Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord God of Israel and they sought him and he let them find him. And in those times, there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in. Many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the land and nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every kind of distress. Now somebody explain to me the circumstances of verses 3 through 6. What era are we talking about here? So it sort of sounds like the judges period some. I mean, they would cry out to the Lord... And the Lord would send a deliverer. Now, they might be like in the days of Othniel when they were suffering from Kushan Rishathayim. Uh, just one, that's fun to say, isn't it? Uh, just evil. Eight years of oppression. That's a long time. And so they slowly came to their senses. Eight years, nearly a decade. That's a long time to be suffering. And they cry out to the Lord. Finally, their distress becomes so great and they're realization that they need God that he sends Othniel to be their deliverer and their their salvation so perhaps the judges period is under consideration perhaps even the time previous when Israel is in Egypt perhaps for the 400 years uh, would also be a time when nation was crushing nation and and there wasn't a lot of Guidance from the prophets, and that's another thing we often don't think about with the prophetic voice. It's not like it was a constant throughout Israel's history. There's sort of a concentration of the prophetic voice in the days of the kings, where you have Elijah and his successor, Elisha, and you have the writing prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets. That's much later in Israel's history. We read about people who didn't write books like Nathan and Gad, but they were prophets during uh, the days of David. And there were schools of the prophets, but there were times in Israel's his history where there wasn't a prophetic voice. Even in the days of Eli, the judge, it, if we're talking about the judge's period, what does it say in 1 Samuel 3 and verse 1? Can anybody recall what is said about the work of God in those days? It was rare. It was rare or precious. It, it was not nor, the norm at all. 
And so there were times when people were looking for direction from the Lord and basically what had already been revealed in the law was their direction. And it talks about their when they went out or when they came in. That's uh, an interesting figure of speech. Uh, that's, well, I won't go into it now. But it, it's an interesting figure of speech. It, re- it represents every part of a person's day, uh, coming out and going in, the, the whole thing. So he says, in, as a result, he says, but you be strong and do not lose courage, for there is reward for your work. I think there's a great message here. In regard to the times in which we live, it is always true that you should be strong and not lose courage, for there is reward in your work. Somebody, somebody, could you quote the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15? We're going to be studying that tonight, that text, 1 Corinthians 15. What's the conclusion after he's gone into all of that discussion about our hope in the resurrection? Abounding in the work of the Lord as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There is reward for your work. Now, what causes people to have courage and develop strength? What do we see here? One thing, tell me one thing that causes strength and courage. Yeah, it's the participation together. Why do, why do you think... God organized his people this way. It, it, it is helpful to be encouraged. Where, where are we the most vulnerable when we are isolated and alone out there? You know, and, and, and really the message to Elijah when he was all alone was, you're not alone. How many were still like him in Israel? 7,000 who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. You, you're not, and, and let me just say about that statement in 1 Kings 19. Some of the measurement of people in this time, even, even the rulers of Judah, is based more on that than anything else. You have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. That would be my argument about these kings who didn't do everything that they could and should have done like remove the high places but Jehoshaphat did not bow the knee to Baal Jehoshaphat worshipped the true God Jehovah all his days Asa despite his spiritual problems and what happens in chapter 16 worshipped Jehovah in the right place in the right way all of his days. And I think that's really the point of he was blameless all his days. It's not, that, it's not that there was no misstep or that there was not even significant failure at the end of his life. I, we're going to talk about how that plays out tomorrow. But, but I think those statements are made about he, his heart was wholly devoted all of his days is more about his single devotion to Jehovah in contrast to the service of multiple gods. Any comments about that? Shane, you look like you're, the wheels are turning. Just writing the notes. Okay. The other thing I was going to say is, when the word of God is proclaimed by God's spokesman, the result can be strength and courage. Why are we doing gospel meetings still? It's our tradition. Right, Leon? We've done this our whole preaching lives. You you have a meeting in the spring and a meeting in the fall. Yeah, it does you good. You could ask the people back home, I've noticed this. I'll preach like I do this week. I'll go home and when I preach there, I will have an enthusiasm and a zeal I didn't have. I had enthusiasm and zeal before, but, but I just seemed to be strengthened. 
encouraged because of what I've done. And I think that's what, we're, we're not converting thousands of people in gospel meetings. I told somebody that I mentioned Johnny Edwards uh, on Sunday. He showed me a sermon on the back of it. He, had, he wrote on the back 37 baptisms. Had a gospel meeting where they baptized 37 people. You ever had one like that, guys? No. No, I've never had one like that. I've had two or three, and I thought that was awesome. You know? And that's we're not doing evangelistic meetings anymore. I'm okay with that. You know, if, if I'm preaching first principles lessons, and, and they're bringing in 10 or 15, 20 people from the community, let's do it. Let's do it. But that's not generally happening in gospel meetings. We're not bringing them in, you know, beating the hedges and getting people in here who need to hear the gospel and preaching first principle lessons. If I preach lessons like that, I feel like I'm wasting an opportunity in the present climate. I think the Lord's people need to be encouraged. I'm going to do something on evangelism uh, next summer. And one of the things I'm going to say is evangelism is not just something that's done to the lost. I think we make a fundamental error when we use a term like that, evangelism, heralding the gospel as something that's only done to the lost. My experience is we need to be evangelizing the saved and keeping them strong, keeping their faith strong. That, that's an important part of evangelism. How many people do you know who have fallen away from the Lord? Hundreds. If we can prevent that from happening, look, my business is soul-saving is soul-saving. It doesn't matter if it's somebody who's recent, had been in covenant with God who's never been in covenant with God. My, my concern is saving souls, period. Teach the truth that saves souls. James chapter 1, the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. That's why we have these series of meetings, to hopefully bolster your faith, encourage you, set you on an even better course than you were prior. There's all kinds of good things that can happen, and the proclamation of God's word tends to do that, to produce strength and courage. And leadership produces strength and courage. How, how important is it to have a guy at the helm, whether it's elders or, or preachers, how important is it to have someone to look up to who's walking the walk and not just talking the talk? How important was it in Judah to have a faithful king? What did they often do when they had a faithful king? They often followed the ruler. Not always. Josiah would be a notable exception, but again, they were so corrupt by that point, uh, they didn't follow Josiah like they had other kings. And, of course, judgment was ripe at that time. But I love it when Joshua says in Joshua 24 in the very beginning when they, they conquer the land, you know his famous statement, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And all the people say, yeah, we'll serve the Lord. And he says, no, you won't. No, you won't. You'll serve other gods. But it's something interesting follows that as he continues to admonish them. In verse 31, it says, they did serve the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. That's, that's a lot of leadership. That's what leadership does. And that's why when you provide leadership in the local church, you don't have to be an elder to do that. We think, we think elders and preachers are the only leaders in the church. That's not true. The more people you have faithfully serving the Lord, dedicated disciples, people you can count on who are reliable, when situations and circumstances happen, you know you can count on those people. They're going to be in their spot. They're going to be in their place. That kind of leadership makes a difference. It's contagious, just like faithlessness is contagious. And so I wanted to make that point here about verse 7. And so Asa was encouraged. Now this is 15 years into his reign. It says, Asa heard these words and he took courage. He even did some more good things. He removed the abominable snowman. No, the abominable idols. 
He restored the altar of the Lord, which was in front of the porch of the Lord. It needed repairs. It needed to be more of a focal point for the people. And notice that because of his leadership, look at this. People defected to him. We already have Judah and Benjamin being addressed. Remember we talked about 11 tribes of the north yesterday and just Judah in the south. It didn't take long for for Benjamin, which was just to the north of Judah, to say, we're going this direction. Plus, a lot of them, there's a lot of good people in the country who wanted to worship at the temple the right way. There were some godly people who wanted to do this. So Benjamin, for a lot of reasons, they joined Judah, but they're not the only ones that had. He captured the hill country of Ephraim. And so some of Ephraim, some of Manasseh, and some of Simeon, which was to the south, who resided with them, defected from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. In Asa, it wasn't all about him. It was all about his relationship to the Lord. And so in the 15th year of Asa's reign, they have this big reaffirmation to the covenant with God. They invite everybody to revival and renewal. Big sacrifices, 700 oxen, 7,000 sheep. They entered into covenant to seek the Lord God. And then I've got verse 13 circled. Whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, death penalty. Boy, that'd get some things done, wouldn't it? You don't want to serve the Lord in the proper way in Jerusalem, in the place of his presence? Death penalty. I'd like to know if they carried that out with some folks. You know, just like the disobedient son uh, was to be put to death in Deuteronomy. I wonder, I wonder if they did that. Moreover, they made an oath to the Lord with a loud voice. Come with joyful shouting, with trumpets and horns, and all Judah... Rejoice concerning the oath, for they had sworn with their whole heart and had sought him earnestly. And then again, he let them find him. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. Boy, the key to peace for these kings was don't do it your way, trust in God. You want to have rest from your enemies. You want to have times of refreshing that comes from the presence of the Lord. And so here's some other things he did. He took his his mother and he removed her from her position because she had made a horrid image as an Asherah. I wonder why he didn't put her to death. uh, That would have been a little severe for mom. But could have. I mean, because she's not... Seeking the Lord God of Israel, maybe he gave her some space and time to repent. But Asa cut down her horrid image, crushed it, and burned it by the brook Kidron. Very similar to what Hezekiah would do, his descendant. As he, what did he crush and destroy? Nehushtan. What was Nehushtan? It was that bronze serpent that Moses erected that they could look on in the wilderness and find healing when they were bit by the poisonous, the poisonous vipers. But the high places were not removed from Israel. He didn't go as far as he could have gone in his reformation. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was blameless all his days. Remember, we drew attention to that in 1 Kings 15. And again, I think that's more about Jehovah worship always, only, versus the worship of other gods. And he brought into the house of God the dedicated things of his father, and there was no more war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. Okay, so 35 years are in the books. How many years did he reign? 41. 41. So what about the last six? We'll get to those tomorrow. Any comments or questions? Any Observations you'd like to make, any questions you'd like to raise about our study this morning? And you're wondering, when is his lip going to stop bleeding? I'm wondering that as well. Well, any, anything? Any observations?
Nothing. Okay. We'll wrap it up right there. Let's pray together. Our awesome God, as we come into your presence and realize that you are the only one, that there is no other God besides you. There is no other thing or no other person that deserves our loyalty. You, you are the one who can bring us great joy and life everlasting. And so we want to acknowledge our need for you. And we ask simply that you let us find you. That you let us come into your presence. And to know the joy that is to be had by fellowship, by walking with you day by day. Realizing that you can deal with things in our lives that are beyond our ability to control. Help us to overcome our anxieties, our concerns, our fears, and realize that with you we are always safe. Despite any threats in the world, despite even the loss of life, that you You will bring us safely home if we will just be dependent upon you. And so we ask for your mercy, your forgiveness, your strength, that we might act courageously as we saw your people do in our text today. In Jesus' name we pray.